Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Once in a blue moon, Tap Lines listener. You know the phrase, you know what it means, and you probably even know that it's the inspiration for the name of the Belgian-style Whit beer that Coors Brewing Company debuted in the mid-90s called, of course, Blue Moon. But you may not know that the mere existence of that brand, which by some metrics is the best-selling craft beer brand of all time, was the subject of debate within the company for the first few years after its release as executives up to and including Pete Coors himself wondered whether the proverbial juice was worth the squeeze of this Valencia orange-garnished micro-brew. According to Keith Villa, the brewer who created Blue Moon in 1995 in Colorado, it was anything but smooth sailing for the now-iconic beer at its outset. And the call was then coming from inside the house. Villa joined Taplines last week for part one of this two-part episode about Blue Moon, and I highly encourage you to go back and check that out if you haven't yet. It should be directly behind this one in your podcast feed. That episode sets the stage for this episode, part two, in which Via and I discuss the brand's soaring success after those rocky first few years in the Rocky Mountains, and how once Blue Moon found its footing in Coors portfolio, it started to face criticism from outside the house, as some members of the craft brewing industry began to lambaste the beer as an interloper to the movement that its brewer had believed he was a part of. There's a lot going on in this one, listener, but what's new, you know? It's Keith Via, it's Blue Moon, it's how Coors capitalized on the craft brewing boom, and it's all right here right now on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. Right, because as we sort of mentioned earlier, in the broader American microbrew economy or what would become sort of the craft brewing, you know, economy, there's that slump happening. So you've got to, I, I'm a, it sounds like management is looking around saying, oh, maybe this thing was more of a flash in the pan than we thought. And by the way, this blue moon experiment that Keith's got going on over there, uh, it's time to wind that down. Uh, but you were fi- I had no idea that that Blue Moon was so on the ropes in its early days internally. I thought there was buy-in internally at least, but uh, it sounds like no, n- not so. No, no, not at all. It was it was really it, it was on the ropes. I mean, I'm literally wow. on the edge of extinction. And I remember I traveled the country as much as I could to. I, I mean, my my wife she was a saint at that time because our our kids. Uh, she was at home, you know, watching the kids and she had a full-time job as an engineer. And so she was, she would have to handle the kids. Luckily, our, her parents and my parents were in town. And so she would get help from them as I was trying to do beer dinners and get people to do this yeah, and yeah. convince, convince distributors to not drop it. Cause you know, I, I would pull up sales data and say, Hey, these bars in your territory are actually selling and growing. And, and I said, we could, and I said, we'll keep supporting. And I'll, if I have to fly out here and do beer dinners for your retailers, I'll do it. And I did it. <laughs> and but and I didn't have to at that time. I didn't have to, but I, I did it uh, mainly because if you remember when I launched, I don't think I said it, but um, every new product that was launched at Coors would go through a, a process where before launch you would present to uh, Pete and Bill Coors and their direct uh, leadership team uh, in, in a, the top of the brewery. There was this bar there. It was, it was a bar just for the leadership. They would meet at the end of the day. 
And so um, if there was a new product, you would get there with your flip chart. <laughs> In those days, it was you know, a big flip chart. You know, you'd have your no big PowerPoint. pens. And yeah. No PowerPoint at all. <laughs> this was before PowerPoint. And so you'd have to develop, you know, you'd write what what it was you were doing, uh, when the, the launch date was, when the expected return on investment would be, you know, all these different pieces of data. And I remember uh, presenting that and, and letting them taste the beer. And I, I, I remember clear as a bell, they did not like Blue Moon, the taste of it. Um, I remember the uh, uh, some of these senior guys, uh, they even... They said, I don't like it. And they would say, give me a Coors Light uh, or give me a, a Coors Original or whatever. It was It was called Original Coors, I guess. Yeah. No, Coors Original. And so they put their glasses down and I was thinking, that's rude. And then some of them even turned their backs to me and started little conversations. <laughs> and I thought, okay. And that oh, was the no. impetus. That was the impetus for me saying, okay, I'm going to prove all you guys wrong. I'm going to use your money to build this thing and it's going to be a hit. And so that's a, that was really the, the internal reason for uh, sticking with my, my creation and, and making it as big as it was. Yeah. Uh, so, so, cause that stuck with me forever. Uh, it was, uh, even when it hit a million barrels, two million, it was, I, I always thought back to that time and I was yeah. thinking, ugh. So, so I proved them wrong in the end. Yeah. Well, I've got this, uh, I've got this quote, uh, that I pulled from Pete Coors. Uh, he spoke with modern brewing age in 1997 that I, I just want to frame up for you because it, I imagine you remember this quote, maybe from your time, uh, you know, pounding pavement, trying to get blue moon to catch on. So he says, uh, to modern brewing age in 1997, quote, frankly, the specialty market, when you take out Sam Adams and Pete's. It's pretty small potatoes. It's difficult for a company our size that puts out 20 million barrels to get too excited about 50,000 or 100,000 or even 300,000 barrels of product, close quote. So, listener, that's how Pete Coors, who's the scion, the heir apparent to Bill and Joe Coors, Bill's his uncle, I think. I forget the relationship. Yeah. But whatever, Pete Coors is the scion. He's taken over the you know the reins. And uh, it gives you a sense for just what, Keith, you were up against even internally, you know, you kind of got a long enough leash to be able to go develop this product and it was getting some excitement in the marketplace, but you know, it was uphill battle, uh, in, you know, out selling the beers, you know, you're doing a lot of hand selling, whatever, but you also, it sounds like, you know, based on that quote and based on what you've just described to us, you just weren't getting the backing that you needed to, or the credibility or the, the respect that you needed to, uh, from inside, from inside the organization either. Yeah, it's, that's absolutely right. It was really tough. It was like pushing a boulder uphill. It was really, t really, really hard. Cause, yeah. uh, and at the same time we had, uh, I had, uh, and Blue Moon had, uh, support more or less from the Brewers Association. It wasn't until Blue Moon really started taking off that the Brewers Association developed this attitude of, Interesting. Uh, oh, that's big brewer craft. Because before that, I, you know, I would go up to Boulder and have lunch with Charlie or uh, Nancy, you know, take him out to lunch and um, talk about the industry and stuff. But then we reached this point in the early 2000s when uh, Blue Moon was just taken off like a rocket ship. And uh, and, and there were some very vocal voices on the mm. BA board who, who said, wait a minute, that's not a real craft beer or a real microbrewed beer. And so that's when this uh, attitude started forming about, okay, what is a real craft beer? And so they put together criteria saying, okay, well, it's, it's this many barrels, independent and this, 
But then, of course, it was pegged uh, with the thought of being small. And as Sam Adams grew, they had to change that criteria. And they'd say, oh, but it's this many barrels. Sort and of, then after that, it's this many. <laughs> right. Sort of, listener, for those of you who are not as uh, maybe inside inside the industry or who don't necessarily know some of the, the lore, some of the backstory, what Keith is referring to is a sort of infamous... I mean, basically a joke at this point, um, you know, and, and people all kind of roll their eyes about it and whatever. But um, it, whenever Boston Beer Company, which owns Sam Adams and, of course, now owns everything, you know, Twisted Tea, owns Dogfish Head, owns Angry Orchard, et cetera, et cetera. Whenever Sam Adams would grow to that upper ceiling of whatever limit the Brewers Association had defined craft brewers as – well, guess what? Next year, uh, that upper limit just happened to, you know, to float upwards just just a smidge more, just another million barrels or so more to give to give uh, Boston Beer Company, which to its credit was growing very, you know, very well and obviously having a lot of success at that point. But Jim Cook was a was a major advocate for for the craft brewing industry, and so it behooved the Brewers Association, who counted on not only his influence and his charisma, uh, you know, but also on Boston Beer Company's dues, uh, they, they behooved them to make sure that they stayed within the lines of what was technically considered a craft beer, according to the Brewers Association. <laughs> yeah, it's by a volume. And then when Sam Adams came out with uh, the, the, the Trulies and Twisted Teas, the yes. non-malt oh, yeah. malt beers, then because for the longest time, the BA rules said it's got to be traditionally brewed, you know, right. no adjuncts or anything. Right. But then they said, okay, you can use adjunct. <laughs> so the, it's almost like if you're playing a, a game of football and your favorite team is, is you know, trying to march down the field – and then all of a sudden, in the middle of the game, they say, ah, "Rule change! <laughs> it's you need <laughs> it's twenty yards for a first yeah, down." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, I want to talk about that for, for you know, sort of this dynamic that emerges, Keith, because I think this is really germane to the story. Obviously, Blue Moon has a tremendous amount of success. You know, it does find its footing as we've discussed. It goes on to be the first you know, million uh, barrel craft beer brand, uh, if you define it not as the Brewers Association does, but you define it in like the Potter Stewart, know it when you see it type definition. I mean, I think for most American drinkers, this, you know, they would characterize this as a craft beer. Uh, a tremendously successful beer is, is, is the long and the short of it. And as I said, you know, earlier on in our conversation, it's a gateway beer for millions and millions of American drinkers who may stick with Blue Moon or may move on to other more full, you know, other full flavored beers, uh, you know, across the, the craft beer landscape to IPAs, to pale ales, to, to whatever that, you know, whatever else they're into. Um, so, uh, you know, I think on balance, uh, in my analysis, I've only covered the, you know, I've, you've been in this business for more than 30 years. I've only covered it, you know, for about a dozen, but in my analysis, like it has, uh, a, a important role, uh, you know, a, a central role in sort of the, the American craft brewing pantheon. A lot of people, as you alluded to, don't feel that way and didn't. I think this, I get the sense that this sentiment has somewhat subsided. You know, we're recording mm -hmm. this in late 2023. Um, this feels like kind of a, a, you know, water under the bridge maybe at this point for a lot of people in the industry because, frankly, the beer category has bigger fish to fry uh, than these internecine uh, squabbles. But this was a heated uh, uh, point of contention um, you know, in certainly in the aughts and, and in the early, you know, decade that followed the 2010s, um, there was a lot of conversation about 
you know, crafty, quote, crafty beers um, or phantom craft, you would hear some people refer to. Tom Acetality, who, who wrote The Audacity of Hops, would refer to it as phantom craft beers. Um, the, pr- the premise here is that they had the look and feel of what the American drinker understood as craft, right? They had, they were full flavored. They had cool labels. They had interesting names. Um, some of these early markers of what, what craft meant to people, um, or microbrew meant to people, but they were made by, by big companies, right? They were made by, and you know, you were working for Coors at the time. Anheuser-Busch, I think was much more notorious in this pursuit than Coors ever was, um, based on my, my reporting understanding. But there was this anxiety, right? That like the big, the big brewers were going to swoop in and trick um, American drinkers into drinking something they, you know, they thought was 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 craft, but wasn't. And um, that's you know, we talked, we spoke a moment ago about sort of how this this tension emerges, or how like the idea of a definition of what craft is, you know, sort of starts to harden or starts to solidify. When, in your memory, does that start to happen, Keith? It, it was. Uh approximately the mid 2000s is when mm. it started to solidify because um prior to that i would i would always head up the uh, uh gabf participation for coors and so you know, i'd go and talk to the people at uh brewers association because it literally is up the, up the highway from coors and um we would be a sponsor back then we would provide actual cash because they there are other big sponsors like Anheuser Busch provided the uh, the refrigerated storage Miller provided a bunch of the, uh, the like the, the wrist tags and all these IDs saying that uh, people were over 21 um, Coors would provide upfront cash that was sorely needed back then sure, because sure. the GABF you know it, it's almost a bell-shaped curve GABF at the beginning not many people went yeah. but then it, it reached this extreme popularity where everybody wanted to go and it, tickets sold out within i don't know a few minutes after being available and then it kind of i would say it, it hasn't gone down but it's 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 come down a bit Plateau. from its heyday. Yeah, yeah, sure, and, sure. In those early days of, of it, I, I headed up a course participation and we would give a it was a check, I don't know, 30 40 30,000 I think a year, something like that. Um and they needed that money because uh, they, you know, they're a nonprofit, and and they needed that cash up front to to pay for security, secure the the venue, all that stuff. And and when times were thin, I remember that uh, I, I I got pushback from Coors. They would say, you know, we're not sponsoring this anymore. You know, it's there's no re- return on our investment. You right, know, right. where's the return? And so I'd go up to the BA and I'd say, you know, I, I'm under pressure. Uh, this is going to dry up. I, I, it's been fun, but I can't do this unless we can show some return on investment. And so I, I would talk to Nancy Johnson. She was the uh, uh, director. I think now she's VP, but back then she was the director of of the B, uh, the uh, GABF. And so I said, you know, we got to show the, the return. So she put together, uh, one year she put together this thick book that said, okay, here's what we can give them. And it showed uh how many uh, people were there? What what the demographic breakdown was? Uh, uh, it didn't say exactly what you know that this resulted in, in a return on investment. But what I did is I convinced the folks at Coors. I said, "Look, here's here's a little document that they made up. Uh, mm-hmm. It shows that uh, you know at that time I don't know maybe twenty thousand people total. Uh, saw, we, we had twenty thousand, forty thousand eyeballs on on beers. And I said, I said, and we can uh, have our our end caps over there to really showcase our brands. And I said, it's, it's like a, a commercial. And I said, you know, we, it's, we can get this done. And, and actually, uh, I said, 
And, and Nancy had even gone through some work to to say, here's an estimate of of the amount of uh, dollars this would be right. if, if it were a commercial. And so I, I presented all that, and they said, okay, we can we can fund for another year, and and we did that for a couple of years. But that was through the, the lean times, and then mm. GABF it caught on fire to the point where uh, home brewers and all these people into beer started saying, wow, I want to go to that thing because that's like. It's like going to Mecca for brewers. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. go and you can have your favorite beers and, and it grew. So the BA, you know, they we still provided funding, but they were getting funding from some of the bigger crafts that were starting to get big, uh, Boston mm-hmm. Beer, mm-hmm. Uh, et cetera. And so, and then they reached the point in the mid 2000s where that's when that, that us versus them mentality started mm. to take hold. And they said, well, that's not a real craft. Maybe maybe Blue Moon shouldn't be in the GABF because it's part of this and that. And and, and I remember it was it was just uh, it was I was thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> what changed between now and just a couple of years back when we'd come up and we'd have lunch? <laughs> and it was it was uh, it was but it was a change. And and it turned out it was it was basically the membership. There were some real vocal people. Uh, I won't name any of them, but there were some vocal people on on the BA board who were really anti uh, big brewer, they would call it, and they said, "No, those people they're, they're they're bad for craft because they steal our share and everything." Meanwhile, they wouldn't listen because some of these people, I would say, "Wait a minute, I was just in the marketplace, and uh, there were bigger craft brewers." ahead of you presenting their case to the distributor and they just talked about how you small guys shouldn't be there because you're not you're not paying for your retail space on that that shelf mm. and so it was, it was like everybody does that it's like it's like a war zone when you're on the sales side on sure. the brewer's side it's like you it's collegial uh, you know you it's like you if you need a cup of malt yeah <laughs> a bag of malt you go you can go get a bag of malt from your neighbor and it's it's more friendly but it, it i think the sales aspect really turned back then and started to solidify in the 2000s so that by the teens, early teens, it was definitely there where they started putting the rules together. What is craft? What's not craft? And and it, it just kept kind of doing that. And then eventually we got to today's market where, you know, people say, uh, if it's perceived as craft, it is craft. And, uh, and, and we have uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev selling off eight of their craft brands. Right. Um, uh, Coors closing down what they closed down Crispin, uh, that, that cidery. They, Correct. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So there's just so much movement now, and yeah. So the term craft is, I don't know. It's it, maybe it's it's had its heyday, and uh, it doesn't uh, mean as much as it did. I, I I'm not sure what to think of it. <laughs> I want to interrogate if you if you uh, if you'll indulge us, Keith. I want to like lay out sort of what the objections were as you understood them, because. You know, th- this idea that, you know, craft has a certain specific thing and, hey, Blue Moon isn't isn't it, right? It animates a lot of the discourse in craft brewing for, a, a oh, gosh, long, more than half a decade. I mean, it's, it, is, it is front and center on the minds of many, many uh, industry leaders in, in what would become a very, you know, lucrative segment for a time last decade. Um, you know, 12% or share of the, of the overall beer industry, I think is where it peaks out. Um, but this idea, and, and as you mentioned, and I agree with this, I, I sort of flicked at this earlier. I, I think it's really not front of mind for, for drinkers anymore, or even industry people anymore who are, have bigger, uh, you know, problems, you know, alligators that are closer to the boat, so to speak. But, um, what were the, as you understood them, you know, sort of the objections or the reasons that some of those more vocal, 
uh, objectors or agitators within the Brewers Association wanted to carve out something like a Blue Moon or like a Shock Top, which Anheuser-Busch introduces in 2006 to try to fight uh, what had then become a very successful Blue Moon brand. Besides like personal beef, which I'm sure there was some of, uh, what were the more sort of like concrete objections as you understood them? Well, um, some of them were uh, sales and, and shelf space mm-hmm. and tap and especially tap handles. I think tap handles were really big because uh, when Blue Moon would go into a new market, we would tell people, okay, you know, here's here's our brand, you know, here's our tap handle if you want to put it on tap. Uh, and they'd say, well, we, you know, we only have so many taps. Because in those days, uh, we, we did reach a point where bars had you know, tens of tap handles, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 tap handles. But yep. prior to that time, most bars would have five, four or five tap handles. Some had three. And one was Bud Light, one was Miller Light, or maybe, or, you know, <laughs> one was Budweiser. So there were really only two up for grabs. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the way it was. And so so that real that was prime real estate because back then that's how you built a brand. Whether, whether it was a big brewer brand or a small craft brand, you built a brand on premise. Mm-hmm. It was Im- almost impossible to build one off premise. So you would go to a bar, you had that tap handle, uh, you would you would serve your beer. And so it became kind of the 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 war zone for for sales for beer. And I think that's where it kind of originated. And of course, as, as a, a, a brand like Blue Moon, we'd go in and, and they'd, we would present numbers. We'd say, you know, if we put this on tap and you do the orange garnish and everything, uh, here's here's how your sales will look. And then they'll go like this. And here's how much money you can make on that one tap handle. And by the way, it'll bring in drinkers who, who are coming with their friends because the the bulk of their friends might want that Bud Light on tap, but there's going to be one or two that want a specialty beer, and this is easy to drink, you know. And if you want to uh, really uh, give them something stronger, you can have bottles of that down in your fridge. Right. And, and most retailers would say, "I get it. Okay, I'll do that." And I think that that type of an argument would rub a lot of the smaller guys the wrong way because they would say, "Hey, wait a minute. This is my city. I should have something on tap right there." And but at, at that time, and and. Maybe it was fair, maybe it was not fair, but at that time that was reality. It was it was the rea- reality. Retailers want to make money uh, to stay in business, yep. and and so that's so they would choose that, but they would typically put bottles of of others down in the fridge. Obviously, it's not as prime as you don't as having get the your great placement. Handle. Yeah, you don't get the handle, yeah. which basically, of course, as everyone who's listening to this surely has been in a bar and knows this, the tap handle is effectively an advertisement. I mean, it is, you know, it's the pitch to the drinker. It's eye-catching when you walk in. The tap tower is right there. So, yeah, they get bumped down to, you know, the fridge, which may be a low boy beneath the bar, so you may have to kind of look over the bartender's shoulder to try to see what labels they've got. It's not as primo a placement. You can understand why, whether it's Blue Moon or another brand, as you mentioned, this is just hand-to-hand combat to try to Get and hold those tap handles. That, that's it exactly. Because it was the best real. It was the best real estate. Yeah, yeah it's like trench warfare, yeah. and you're fighting for that tap right. handle. As, as long as you can keep it, it's it's like it showcases your brand. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there have been numerous articles written over the years, and I have I have kept almost all of them that talk about Blue Moon and how it is the brand that disrupted the beer industry and brought the typical light beer drinker into craft. And I can't tell you the number of craft brewers who have written me emails over the years to say thank you for creating Blue Moon because it it was my entry into craft and then I became a, a brewer. And uh, 
so so yeah, it really was a critical brand to to change the market out there and uh, get people thinking that beer can be more than a light lager. And um, but it, and it worked. It took time. It took a lot of work, and it, it may never have happened if I had given up those first few years when I was getting pushback from from my senior management. But uh, I stuck with it and. Yeah. And along the way, uh, just tried to, to really push craft, the message of craft through through Blue Moon because it, it really had a, a voice and uh, up to a certain point. But then that voice was kind of shut down by the us versus them movement. And uh, uh, But in the end, I think everybody saw that uh, craft beer really did grow. It became 12% of the market. The, the BA, they had this uh, goal years ago. They, they said... 20, 20 by, by 20, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, 20
Um, but I wanted to close on just, you know, we talked about sort of, uh, you know, its place in the craft beer um, landscape and in the pantheon where I, I, I believe it belongs. And I think I'm, I'm not alone in, in feeling like that. I wanted to close on uh, something, you know, a little bit more personal for you. Uh, you created this brand or you, you know, you, you were on the team that created it. Um, and you, you know, you came up with the recipe, you developed this, you go out, you push it, uh, you know, like anyone does when they've got a young craft beer brand, whether or not, um, you're backed by cores at that point was less relevant because it sounds like the cores management wasn't necessarily <laughs> backing you too hard anyway. Uh, so you've gone through the trials and tribulations that, that are familiar to many small brewers then and now. Um, and yet, as we mentioned, you know, Blue Moon does have, you know, came in for a lot of ire from some quarters of the industry uh, at, you know, at uh, about a decade ago um, because it was, it came from, you know, big beer, quote unquote, became, because it was corporate. But you never changed. Keith V was the same dude who studied in Brussels, who got a, you know, got a taste for, uh, you know, whip beers there and, and decided to come over, you know, back to the U S and see, and try his hand at what an American version of that would look like. How, what, how do you sort of feel about where blue moon's place in, you know, the, the landscape, you know, where, where would you situate it? I said the Pantheon, but I know there are probably some complicated feelings about how it was received by not only the American drinking public, but also your peers in the brewing industry. You've had a chance to, you know, you've been gone six years now. You had a tremendous run at Coors. Now you're at Seria, um, but you've had a chance to sort of be removed from it. How do you think about Blue Moon's legacy? Well, it's interesting because here, uh, in the office of our new brewery, my wife dug up a lot of this. I saved a ton of the old articles and all that yeah. stuff and advertising. And uh, so she she framed a bunch of different things. And as I walk around and look at some of these things, I see like uh, Ad Age, uh, you know, all these uh, Forbes. I see a bunch of articles from over the years where yeah. they, they talk about Blue Moon. And uh, and I think, wow, it really did move the needle for the craft beer industry. It, it Yes, craft beer was all, always there since uh, 1965 when Fritz Maytag, you know, purchased uh, Anchor, the old Anchor Brewery. Uh, and that was kind of the, the first, I guess, wave of, of uh, craft. So it's been there, but it was always this little niche, tiny, mm, mm. Uh, almost hard to measure from a sales perspective compared to the sales of Bud Coors Miller. And Blue Moon uh, really ushered in, I think, the, the modern era where you can have a beverage that that the drinker can drink, even if they're they're a Coors Light drinker, a Bud Light drinker, whatever, they can drink a, a Blue Moon and say, "Wow, that, I like craft." And like you said earlier, some people would stick with it or, or, or find others along that same gateway status, like a Fat Tire or something like that. Sure. Uh, Sam Adams Boston Lager, whereas others went further in and said, "You know what? I'm going to try that IPA <laughs> and, and or that Imperial Stout," and yeah, yeah. and it's like. Some people would dip their toes in and say, oh, too much, and they'd come back. Others would say, ooh, I love that. And so it really, Blue Moon helped to usher in that, that and I would say they sped up the evolution of craft. Uh, because it really, as I read some of these articles and look around at these pictures, it's it really is clear that Blue Moon uh, sped up the evolution of what craft became and um, and helped influence brewers, craft brewers, who actually went on to do their work. Uh, Indirectly or directly, um, 
because uh, from a direct perspective, I helped several uh, craft brewers when they were having issues. Uh, Boulevard, in the early days when John McDonald ran it, uh, they would have quality problems with diacetyl or whatever. And if I happened to be in the market, I'd stop by and I'd say, okay, you know, here's what's going on? And I'd say, okay, here's what you could probably do to fix it. And they even had these little houses in the back and they said, okay, uh, you could stay in that if you want. And I'd say, okay, I'll, I'll spend the night in one of your little, uh, it was called, they called them casitas. Uh, that, those have been torn down and replaced with huge uh, warehouses now filled with tanks. Uh, New Belgium, uh, Jeff Liebisch, at that time, he had, he was brewing in his basement. And I would, uh, he needed yeast. I remember t- uh, tasting his beer the first time saying, this tastes infected. <laughs> and he yeah, said, yeah. he said, well, he said, I don't have any way to clean up the yeast. I said, I said, well, I can use my lab and propagate yeast for you. Uh, he said, can you? And I said, sure. And so he would come to my house about every three or four months to get, uh, uh, a fresh little culture of yeast. Because in those days, at the beginning of New Belgium, he would use uh, yeast from the, I think it was the red bottles of Chimay. And he, he would brew with that. Really? <laughs> so, and so so I'd, I'd culture that. And then eventually he got, uh, I don't know which strain it was, but he the Chico strain, I think. And so I cultured that. And he would come and uh, pick up his, his container of yeast. And, and then I helped him to get his first brewmaster and second brewmaster. So Peter Buchart. Uh, who was there for 18 years, I think, as their brewmaster, a Belgian from Rodenbach Brewery. I helped, uh, I wrote one of the letters. Jeff wrote a letter. I wrote a letter to the Immigration and Naturalization Service to bring Peter over and get a green card. To this day, I still have a copy of that letter that helped bring Peter in to to get New Belgium going. Um, So I've helped a lot of craft brewers directly, indirectly, through, through them just tasting Blue Moon and saying, wow, that's great, and becoming brewers. So Blue Moon really has uh, moved the needle in, in the terms of craft, the craft beer world. And uh, yeah, it's been fun to be part of it. But like I said at the very beginning of this, you know, I, I'm never satisfied staying still. I, I always like to keep tasting and improving things. And, uh, uh, you know, just and, and I always have time to, to help fellow brewers. I, well, to a certain degree, because there's some who say, oh, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And uh, But, you know, if I'm if I'm having a beer someplace, I'll, I'll if I taste something off, I'll say, you know, there's a, a little issue here. Uh, and I try to be as diplomatic as possible. I never say, pour it out and go, blah, this is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's and, very gracious of you, Keith. Uh, <laughs> Keith, I know you brought a couple props today. And if you give us yeah. just a few more moments of your time, I'm sure our viewers who are watching this on Von Pear's YouTube channel would love to see them. Uh, what do you got for us today? Sure, yeah. So uh, at the beginning of Blue Moon, we didn't know whether to call it, uh, I mentioned that in our talk, whether to call it, um, we, we knew we were going to call it Blue Moon, uh, but the senior managers wanted to call it Canyon Rock right. Brewing Company. There's that so this Canyon is Rock label, the yeah. The very first prototype bottle that was made. It was never put on sale, but we said, is this going to work? And it's like, no, we got to change that. <laughs> and uh, so that, that was one there. And then, of course, Blue Moon came out with the first nationally available pumpkin beer in 1995. And this is the very first one here, very first bottle. Um, and and uh, Buffalo Bills, uh, Hayward, uh, Hayward, California, their brew pub came up with the first recreation of pumpkin beer in the modern era yep. of craft craft brewing. Um, and I that's what inspired me to create this in 1995. And this was the first nationally available pumpkin beer in the U.S. And it, it peaked at, I don't know, 45,000 barrels a year, something like that. You can look in, in uh, 
uh, the databases everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was a huge brand and, and still continues to be a huge uh, seasonal brand because it's it's brewed to have a first sip likability. But you had to fight for it. At first, oh, you yes, had to fight yes. for it. Yeah, that's right. That's, I, right. As I that's said, what you were saying. Yeah. Sales got way down and it was I was under pressure to kill it off. There's... <laughs> Here's a, a, a product we came out with, uh, 2011 to 2013. Uh, they're the Weinberg Beer Hybrids. I actually did these in 1996, and nobody mm. liked them because they said, no, that that's, tastes like wine. Yeah. It's like, well, that's the purpose. I want, I want to make a wine beer hybrid that tastes like wine. And so and when I started coming out with these, I, I showcased them at the GABF in the mid-2000s, and they started winning medals. And... And my whole goal was to make something that tasted like wine, but was actually beer. So 51% of this is wheat. Mm. Uh, 49% of the fermentables are Chardonnay grapes. And you get a really nice sparkling Chardonnay taste out of this. And I know some other uh, craft brewers had tasted these prototypes of the GABF. And they said, ah, I got to go make a wine beer hybrid. And of course, theirs were very bitter, like tasted like beer with a hint of wine. Mine were always wine with a hint of beer. Mm. And... Um, and these, uh, of course, it's a wine bottle that was tinted brown, and um, we pulled them eventually because it, it caused confusion. People didn't know if it was <laughs> if it was wine or if it was beer. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and then, uh, of course, when we launched internationally, uh, I launched it in a bunch of different countries, but Japan was one of them. And we had our la- our label f- for Japan, the the launch, and sales wouldn't take off. So we talked to the local uh, salespeople and they said, well, you need a ritual. And so we said, well, let's develop something. And so they helped us and developed this little uh, thing. It looks almost like a, a skateboard park, but it's it's a roller. And what, what the ritual was, was uh, on the back in Japanese, there were three, st- four steps. First, it says, it says to to set the bottle gently down and roll it to resuspend the yeast, and then and it always says natural. The yeast is natural, and then step two it says uh, stand it up, open it gently, and step three uh, it says to pour it in your glass at a forty five degree angle, and step four it says uh, garnish with an orange and enjoy. And once we did this ritual, sales took off in Japan, which is crazy and and the very first uh, uh this is my favorite here marketing campaign for for blue moon was moon me uh jim sabia <laughs> and i uh you know the, we came up with this and thought this is really cool moon me it's the perfect bar call you go to a bar say moon me and of course this did not work uh and we <laughs> in those days we we heard from our our managers that uh, pete had had come back from a, a conference he was going through the airport and of course we we had put a Massive banner at the airport in those days saying, moon me, uh, you know, enjoy a blue moon. Pete saw that and said, get that down. That's, <laughs> he was, he was offended. And it was in those days, you know, <laughs> we wanted to be cutting edge and he said, get it down. So that, that was the end of our moon me campaign. <laughs> oh man. And, uh, uh, then we, we of course had a, our radio ads that we did. I kept the uh, little cassette tape. These are our, uh, I guess, 60 second uh, uh, radio ads that we did back in those days. This is 1996. And, 96. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so uh, uh, on these, I, I would, to say different things and talked about my PhD in one. And we introduced a beer called Abbey Ale. And so we had the, the monks, the, the chanting monks thing, Gregorian chant. We called it Beergorian chant. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so, yeah, we just had lots of stuff. But um, uh, let's see. Prop- oh, and then the last thing we did was I used to do extreme beers before there was a name for extreme beers uh, in the 90s, mm. 95, 96. And then 
we decided to dig up some of those old recipes and, and launch them. So, so here's one example. We, we did this for a couple of years. didn't really last, but we called it the graffiti collection because mm-hmm. Blue Moon was artsy and everything. We said, okay, this is like cutting edge artsy graffiti. And this is one called Chimp. Uh, it was short for Cherry Imperial Ale. And so it was an imperial cherry ale. And um, funny part is, is how we came up with the name was uh, I would write up the recipes and get everything together and take it down to the sandlot. And the, the brewers at the sandlot, John and Tom, they'd look and they'd say, Cherry Imperial Ale. They say they would say, this is Chimp. <laughs> and the, and they, they, the funniest story there is, for Christmas one year, I, I did a, a winter brew, and I called it. I, I took this recipe and I, I combined it with the um, uh, pumpkin beer, made it this imperial pumpkin, and um, I, I hadn't put frankincense in it, so it was frankincense imperial pumpkin ale, and it was a really nice beer. And so they shortened it to Frank the former pimp, and so it was. <laughs> So they, 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 they have a way of uh, marketing things with uh, politically incorrect terminology. <laughs> sure, which was very much a part of that era of craft brewing, too. I mean, there were all these oh, yeah. very goofy names. We had a Burkhardt Bilger listener. We had the uh, journalist from The New Yorker on for a previous episode about extreme beer. We discussed his, his article uh, that ran in 2008 in The New Yorker um, about extreme beer, where he focused on Sam Calagione at Dogfish Head um, and sort of his creative foil, Garrett Oliver at Brooklyn Brewing, who was not into extreme beers nearly so much. But Burkhardt Bilger's favorite uh, goofy name from that era was Old Leg Humper, which I always thought was <laughs> was uh, was a classic of the genre. Um, but that, uh, that's a story for another time. I encourage you to yeah. go listen to that episode. Uh, if you're interested, uh, listener, and I encourage you to go check out Bill Owen's episode of Tap Lines, where we talk about the, the his creation of pumpkin beer, which inspired Keith Villa to go on and create Blue Moon's pumpkin varietal that would uh, be the first nationally distributed pumpkin beer. Um, but for now, Keith, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We've we've had a blast on Tap Lines. We've talked about every aspect of Blue Moon's creation and survival, and then, of course, it's thriving uh, once it finally found its footing, once it got that, uh, that iconic Valencia orange wheel and that iconic 23-ounce uh, Heifeweizen-style, German-style glassware. Um, and, you know, this was just a, a monumental effort uh, you know, for, for you and the team that was, was pushing this beer. Thank you for, for, for telling us this story, man. This was an incredible episode. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Dave. Yeah. It's, uh, it's fun to relive it because it's, uh, yeah, when, when you do it at the time, you're not thinking much. You're just thinking, you know, I created this, it, it's got to keep going. It's, we can't give up, you know, uh, failure is not an option to quote, uh, <laughs> who was at the M&M. <laughs> failure is not an option. So he has a little more color around it. But anyway, that was my, my philosophy. And, and I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And, uh, uh, and it really, it took off. And, and, uh, and it's fun because it's, it's part of the whole craft beer family. And whether you like it or not, it is, it's perceived as craft. Therefore, in my opinion, it is. And it's, uh, it's a, it was a lot of fun uh, talking with you, reliving the old days. And uh, yeah, cheers to everything you do to get to get the word out about craft beer Oh, and its history. You're too kind, but this Taplines host will always take compliments from his wonderful guests. Keith Via, thank you again so much for joining us. Have a great day, man. Cheers. All right, listener, that was part two of our two-part episode about Blue Moon with Keith Via. 
There's so much more to this story, so if you haven't yet, definitely go back and check out part one, which should be directly prior to this one in your podcast feed. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seasai, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.